Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for allowing us to study more of your word and uh, how your wondrous acts of redemption have caused us, has now caused us to confess and believe certain things that you bring in our hearts this joy that leads to us to praise your name and confess to the whole world what you have done. So we ask, Lord, that as we study the Apostles' Creed and what these things mean for us today, that you would allow these things to take root in our hearts and that they would lead us to heart, have that heartfelt confession that has been confessed throughout the ages. And it's in your Son's name we ask. Amen. So this week we're starting our introduction to the Apostles' Creed. So we talked about the drama of redemption for the past quarter, and now we're moving to the doctrines of redemption. Um, And the story that we have gone through, we've already started seeing how God's Word already comes to us with a vision of God, what He's doing in the world, and this radical rescue mission that He has for us. But then on top of that, it's important to see how all these different pictures and these scenes of redemption are kind of like they are they're chronological. Those things are happening in history and in time. But it's important as we look at the whole thing that from that, that picture, if we think of it like this is history and time, that from that we see God acting and revealing Himself in various different ways throughout history, from those things, we say, okay, so what did all these different individual things teach us about God? And that's what we think of as the doctrine. The doctrine is confessing a certain thing about who God is, or the doctrine of redemption, or the doctrine of the church. So from all those different mountain peaks, we come and find a single doctrine, And it comes right out of the text. But it's looking at it much more holistically. Much more like, if you think of a road map, like the map of the United States, that map is the entire drama of redemption. And the cities in that map are the doctrines, are the kind of the points on that map that are connected by all these different roads, are connected by all these different things. And so that's really what what doctrine is getting at. It's kind of making a systematic category and vision of what has to be true in order for this drama of redemption to be true. Does that make sense? So we're looking at it and saying, okay, what is necessary for God to be this way in order for Him to act this way in history? And so the story leads us to confess something about what God has done, who He is, and then who we are in light of His redemption. And the story of redemption gives gives birth to these doctrines that we confess. Um, God, in His Word, tells us what He's going to do, His promises. He does it. That's His action. And then He actually goes and tells us what He just did. So that's that's always the paradigm of how God is speaking to us in His Word, He's telling us who He is, He's telling us what He's going to do, He does it, and then He interprets it for us. Um, And so the doctrines are looking at the whole story, and they're asking 
about single topics. They're asking about the doctrine of God. They're asking about those kind of things. And that's in many ways what, is su- what the summary of a creed is. A lot of people have a real allergic reaction today to creeds and confessions. But in reality, it's just saying this is a small summary of what the Bible is teaching. This is just a small summary of what we believe about God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And those things are just crystallized summaries of what is going on. So three things we want to talk about today. First, what it actually means to believe. So he said, because we start the creed, I believe. And then in God, who God is, who is God? Like what God are we confessing? And then it says that he's the Father Almighty. So then we'll look at how God is our Father. So the word creed is simply derived from credo, which means I believe. It really means I'm confessing something. I'm believing with my heart and saying it to the world what is true. Now, creeds are all throughout the Bible. Like we, something, that's something that we don't often realize is that the Bible is packed with creeds and confessions all the way back to Old Testament Israel with this confession that, that Israel was supposed to say daily that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and I'm the one who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And because of that, God gives all these commands in the Ten Commandments. So God is always interacting with us, telling us who he is, and that is supposed to lead to a confession that it's something that one believes in your heart and you confess with the mouth. And that's what we even see in God's word in Romans 10, where it specifically says that with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Um, Faith cannot but do this. If you have faith, the heart, wants to confess certain things before the world. That's, that's, that's just like the, the reaction. Is we see what God has done. You see this throughout the Psalms. And it's like, tell of his mighty deeds. Tell of what is his handiwork. Tell of all the things that he's done. We see those things and then we, we're just led to praise. We're led to singing what he's done back to the world and confessing, I believe. So that's, that's what the backdrop is like that these things are very much a part of the Old Testament history, very much part of the New Testament church, that there were these, all these creeds floating around because that is just what it means to be a Christian. Um, but what does it actually mean to believe? Uh, when people are asked what they believe in, you probably hear all kinds of things today. It could be saying, I believe in UFOs or... You know, I believe in this cause. Yes. <laughs> Bad timing. <laughs> Some people believe in, in causes. Some people believe in science or, you know, YOLO, you only live once. People believe in freedom or democracy. Um, and that usually means that I just think UFOs are real. I hope they are. That would be kind of cool. Or people think believe in democracy, meaning... They just think that that's a just and beneficial way of life. But what Christians mean when they say, I believe in God, is something very different than, oh, I just hope that UFOs are true. It's something very 
very distinct based upon the object of God and what He has revealed Himself to be. Uh, people can believe in UFOs or in democracy without ever looking for a UFO or even voting. And in all those cases, belief is just a matter of, you know, hopeful wishing. And, but the creed begins with, I believe in God. And that means something very different. The term, I believe, really means I am believing into God. It means I am leaning into Him and resting in Him. It's, it's, a, it's a very different kind of posture where I'm hearing and seeing all of what God has done and I'm going to rest and stake everything on that. I'm putting all the chips on God. I'm putting my entire wager. I'm, I'm casting myself at His feet. So, belief in this Christian sense is saying I'm believing certain truths about God. I am living in relationship to Him in this commitment of trust and union with Him. So, when we say I believe in God, it's really professing this conviction that is this public commitment that I, I have heard God's call from His kingdom and I am entering into that. I'm making that confession of a radical allegiance to God's kingdom. Does that make sense? That, that, that's a big difference between I'm just hoping UFOs exist or democracy seems like a good thing. No, this is, this is like radical allegiance that takes nothing for granted but, but puts everything at Jesus' feet. All the chips are being waged, are wagered at, at, in Jesus' account. So faith, as we said, it believes with the heart and is justified and then confesses with the mouth and is saved. Uh, and I think it just, it's really good to just like hunker down on what faith actually is. As we said, it's like this idea of believing into something, the idea of this commitment. And this faith is not just this mere opinion or, or feeling as people think about it today. People talk about belief and faith as this kind of nebulous thing that is just completely inside of them, a subjective experience or feeling that has no basis in reality. So people are can disagree about politics, they can disagree about all these things in life, but you know, I have my beliefs and no one can actually say anything against them. Um, but that's not what the Bible means when it's talking about having faith. It's this commitment and resting into something with your whole life because of the news that you have heard. It's committing yourself because of the, of the word, the news that you think is trustworthy. It's because of the content being in the object of God that faith actually gets its form or shape. Because of who God is, that is what determines how I believe in Him. If He's not trustworthy, then we shouldn't have faith in Him. But if he is, that is what faith responds to. And the object of God, Jesus, determines what our faith and our commitment actually in, looks like and involves. And that's why um, the, for a long time, 
the Reformed and Presbyterian Reformed world have had three different elements of faith. Three different parts. They said that there was knowledge, there was assent, and trust. So it first takes in these facts about reality. It's not just the subjective opinion, this hopeful wish, but it's the knowledge about certain things that happened outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, and that because of that, certain things are true about Jesus. But it's not only that, it's not only just these historical facts that are just like, have nothing, they really don't penetrate my head or my heart or anything, but it's also me saying that they're true. Faith says, okay, here are the facts. I think these things are true. But it goes one step further. True saving faith says, yeah, these th- this is true. I believe in these facts. But not only do I believe those things, I am trusting and throwing myself at them and resting in those things. Not only is this true for other people, but this is true for me. It's a heartfelt response of saying, not only to others also, but to me, belong the forgiveness of sins and righteousness and everlasting life. Does that make sense? So those are the three parts that, that we have seen as like, that, that's what biblical faith looks like. Um, a lot of people can grow up in the church. A lot of people can confess these things. And they're just like, oh yeah, that's true. But it doesn't really have an effect on me. Or they can just have the knowledge. I mean, I'm sure all of you have known those kind of stories of people who just like grow up and like, oh yeah, that's nice. Um, that's, that's great. I, I like, like unicorns. You like Jesus. But the Christian understanding of belief rests in objective knowledge and facts about what has happened, believing those things are true, but then also saying, this is true for me. This must be true for me. In order for me to be in a relationship with this God. Um, this is what is true. What I'm hearing, this, this great work of what God has done as, as the Lord and Savior, and this is my response of resting at His feet. My faith isn't making God the Lord and Savior. He already is. But it's the response to the objective thing that He has done and resting and throwing myself at His feet. Um, so faith isn't just knowledge. Faith isn't assent. It isn't this, this, this mystical feeling that you know, there's just some power out there. There's some greater force. Something that's just this mystical awareness of what is above us and, and in us. Um, it's not just that subjective feeling. It, it, may, it may and should have this transcendent awe and awareness but it's also believing into and resting in a God that we know, a God whose name we know and who we can call on. Um, And that leads to us to think about, okay, so if that's true, is there any room for doubt? Um, if If it's something that's really objective and is based in these historical facts, it's based in what God has done in history what do I do if I feel doubt? Is there, is there room for that? Um, is, does it mean that I'm not a Christian because I have doubts? 
Well, I think that part of it, you know, we, we really have to understand that we live in a, in a secular world where we're constantly surrounded by people who tell us that their vision of life, their vision of the good life, their allegiance is just as valid as our own. Their vision of happiness is bumping up against us and they might have life altogether. You know, they, they have a good family, they have a good car, a good job, a good house. They seem like upstanding citizens and they have a totally different sexual ethic than we do. Or they are atheists. Or they believe in thousands of deities. So what do we do with that? Um, I think that in our day, no one really exists in these extreme forms, these extreme camps where they have no doubt, where they're just like complete, utter commitment, and I don't have a question about it, either whether it's God or atheism. I think everyone actually is kind of living in the middle in the cracks of those, of those systems where we're just constantly just feeling the pressure of living in the secular world where it's almost like for a lot of Christians, they feel like they're under attack. They feel like they're oppressed by the news. They feel oppressed by society and things around them. So there's this inherent tension that they have to always defend themselves. They always have to do all these things because we live in this tension. And... And I, th- I don't think that's necessarily bad. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that we're not Christians because we have those doubts. Um, but we often don't realize that we also have a lot of uncriticized conceptions and prejudices that often create problems for us too. So I think that's, that's the second thing is that we have, we're perplexed about certain aspects of what it means to believe in God and we have all these conceptions that the stories that we live in tell us, well, God, if, if God was loving, he wouldn't act in that way. Um, if he was just, he would do X, Y, and Z. And so all those stories and visions of what is good and true and beautiful that our culture keeps telling us, those things are often left unchecked in our hearts and our minds. And those things create doubt. Those things create um, this capacity to, you know, like, I really don't know if I believe, you know, God is my Father. Like, I don't understand how that He can be good and do and send, and send people to hell. Um, all those things are why we constantly have to be renewed in this story, renewed and catechized so that our hearts can really constantly again and again be trusting in God. There's never a moment when doubt isn't going to be there, but the Christian response is that, okay, everyone has those things, but our whole life is constantly one of repentance and faith. Our whole life is constantly placing our feet, our, ourselves and our allegiance at Jesus' feet. And... And that's, that's okay. God recognizes that. And He's not making the standard absolute certitude. He's not making the standard, well, if you have doubts, there's no room for you in my kingdom. 
It's like, no, there will be nobody in his kingdom if that were the case. It's okay. And I think that that is what the church should be. The church should be the space for people to deal with those doubts. It should be a church family where we're able to talk about these things and recognize that we live in a secular world and those things are constantly pulling on the inside of our brains where we feel stretched, like butter spread over too much toast, to quote the Lord of the Rings. Um, that we, we just kind of feel that pressure. I don't know if that makes sense or that uh, resonates with you, but that's how I've tried to think about it. And, and um, So it's okay. So we need to be able to talk about those problems. We can explain those things and talk about those things. But we also need to recognize that there are great answers to all the questions we have. People have thought about these issues that face us and we can talk about them and be, and be free because if it is objective things that are happening in history, you know, we can be cool and be chill and not feel like we have to like hammer down the truth on people because God can defend himself. You know, if, if truth is truth, if, if it's objective and it's real, God is his own best defense. And we can just be confident, you know, that the church has struggled with these things for thousands of years and we can struggle with them together. Um, and, 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 and really realize that at the end of the day, we, each of us, are much more prone to think things and think certain things because of the experiences that we've gone through. Um, none of us are like these pure, objective, fact-finding machines. You know, like, no, we have been hurt by people and we've had dislikes and feelings hurt and gone into certain social places where there's just snobbery and all these things that are offensive that are really bad. Um, and, but God is saying, you know, it, it's okay. Um, let's, the church is this place where we're supposed to be able to bring those things and slowly have our hearts and minds constantly hearing these things and recognizing that our hearts are deceitful and we constantly are going after the stories of happiness this age offers. But he's like, it's okay, I'm going to slowly bring you along. And that's really what catechesis and that's what all these things are supposed to do to constantly convert our hearts to Christ again and again. So so that so that's kind of what it means to believe. That's a lot, but <laughs> that it it doesn't mean we're not going to have doubts. It doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle with these things, but it's this constant confession that we're constantly making over and over again. We're repenting of the things that we're constantly tempted by. We're hearing of what God has done and being led by Him like a good shepherd to trust and put ourselves at His feet. Um, that this is what the creed is for. It's calling us to not just facts, not just things in our mind, but also to that heartfelt love and joy because of who God is, which is our second point, who God is. Um, the God that we actually believe in when we say, I believe in God. 
So when we say this, we're not just making this kind of generic statement of about God. This, we're not we're not saying, oh, you know, this is just this general God of the Abrahamic faiths of Jews and Muslims and Christians. Um, we're not saying this is some supreme force or being. We're doing something much much more specific than that. We're professing faith in the Christian God, the God of the Bible, who has a Christian name. And that is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is God's Christian name revealed to us. And if we're going to confess the creed with our hearts and our minds, that is what we're talking about. We're talking about the triune God. And that, whenever we're, we're believing in something, it's always in distinction from something else. Whenever we're saying, I believe in this, it's saying, I don't believe in this. And I think the, the great divide of that distinction today isn't between religion and atheism. Um, I think that today we think that atheism is the great enemy. But in reality, the Bible sets it up as the one true living God, the Christian God, and pagan idols who aren't a God. It's between the one God and all of these false idols. I think that's one of the things that's like so sinister about secularism and about Western society is that it makes us think that people aren't worshiping idols. Um, people are just like living their life, having the good life apart from religion or faith. But I think as one of the things we try to, to hammer home is that everyone is worshiping something. It may not be a statue that's like on the corner of the street where we're putting our offering, but everybody is worshiping something to get their meaning and fulfillment. And whatever they're worshiping is their God. And secularism and, and the secular age that we live in is sinister because it basically just takes off the clothes and, un, and masks what people are doing, making them think that, oh, I'm just believing in science. I'm objective. Why you got to be judging me, man, because I believe in science, you know? Um, but everybody is putting their faith and allegiance in something. And whether it's a metal deity or it's just something in people's mind and their hearts, if it doesn't square away with the reality of God's universe and who He is, then that's what the Bible says is an idol. So how do we know we worship the true God then? If, if there's all these idols out there, how can we know that we worship the true God? And that's what I was saying before, is like our, our God has a specific Christian name. God has revealed Himself in His identity by speaking and telling us His name. That His name, that who He is, is personal. Uh, first, we see that God gives us His his proper name back with Moses, the great mediator of the Old Testament, at the burning bush 
we see God calling himself Jehovah, as some passages translate, or Yahweh. Um, a lot of the, the English translations have it as big L, all caps, but then just like a different font size, L-O-R-D. And that's whenever you see that in distinction from L-O-R-D with no caps, this is Yahweh, this is Jehovah, this is God's proper name, and this is a more distinct title, like less distinct name. Um, but the name means, I mean, there's a lot of debate about it, but generally we can say that I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. And it's declaring God's almightiness to us, that He cannot be hindered from being who He is, that He is faithful. His faithfulness is being on display. And it's like, nothing in this world can stop him from being faithful to himself and to what he has said. So that's, that's what, when we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, it's this God with this name. Um, second, we also see God as showing his character. Like he's not just this God, but... He's also someone who has a certain character that he's, as we read in Exodus 34, that he's a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, but he'll by no means clear the guilty. So God is revealing who he is, but also what his character is like. And how different he is from all the pagan deities of this world. And the whole Bible, in some ways, can be seen as God constantly revealing that to us. It's revealing and confirming again and again God's character. Why we should even trust him and, ha- and confess this confession that I believe in God. Um, and we even saw that when we were going through the Gospel of John, is that those, these two sides of God's character are constantly being on display, that He is light and He is love. God isn't love without being righteous and holy, nor is He righteous and holy without compassion and, lo- and kindness. But He is this holy and loving God, a loving and holy God, and that's what Jesus constantly is showing us throughout the Gospels. Um, and the second thing we see about, as we said about the name, the Christian name of God, is that He is, we said, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now this is going to be the, the dizzying factor for today. Um, the Trinity what do we mean when we talk about the Trinity? That God is three and one. Um, well, we see that throughout the New Testament, uh, God constantly saying all kinds of things, dropping these hints about who He is. Like He says to the disciples to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say names. He says name. It's a singular thing. Um, that we, when we are become baptized and are Christians, we receive 
God's name upon us. Uh, if you remember back to last week's sermon, when Jacob was wrestling the angel and God attaches his name to him and gives him a new name, well, that's not unlike what God is doing in baptism. He's giving us a new name, a new identity, and he's saying, you are Christian. You are named into the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, what should we make of this? Uh, well, this is probably the great mystery that is the heartbeat of what it means to be a Christian. Like, there's, there's no more central reality than the Trinity and how we are relating to God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is, this is a great mystery because it's just like we, we can talk about certain things, but at the end of the day, we have to just like be done and just like, okay, this, is, this doctrine is what I have to confess for the Bible to make sense, to be true. But I can't wrap my mind around it because God is infinite. God is omnipotent and he's so much beyond us that it's a dizzying thing to kind of think about. Um, what we're saying is that there's this one eternal God who is eternally consisting of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons who are distinct, and yet they all share in the same divine nature. Um, so much so that we, we're not saying that there are three gods, nor are we saying that it's one God with three different faces. Um, I think this is one of the reasons why analogies are, can be so difficult is because they end up either going in one of those two directions where, oh yeah, God is like water, where he's you know, ice, liquid, and steam. But that's just three different modes of the same thing. That's not saying God is more like you know, Peter, Paul, and John. Like three distinct persons. Um, analogies tend to break down and they're always dangerous because they simplify with this great mystery, what we're confessing. And yet, the Christian faith is based on just the knowledge and resting in this fact that Jesus is constantly being portrayed as God, praying to his Father. But then he also promises that him and his Father would send this other helper um, that is another helper of the, of the same kind and quality as him, that is divine just as he is, that all of them are equally God to be worshipped and adored, and that they all have fellowship with us. Um, so this is inescapable for, for Christians from the beginning of the church, that the Trinity is the heartbeat of the Bible. And the gospel of Christ, when, we're, when we analyze it, um, really brings us to that reality. Um, and I think it's good just to, to hunker down on this just for a little bit, uh, because this is not just like one doctrine among many, but it really is the basis for understanding why God is love, for understanding how he even brought the world into existence and all the possibilities of everything we see around us. Um, as one writer said that in the doctrine of the Trinity, that would be the heart of the whole re revelation of God for the redemption of humanity. That, 
that with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we see that God who's above us, but also before us and with us and within us. And this, this article of the faith structures everything else that we're going to see and talk about that whether it's our theology or how we pray to the Father through the mediation of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit or in our liturgies and singing our songs, our whole lives are wrapped around the fact that we are in communion with the triune God. And that really is its great mystery because as finite creatures, we can only just catch glimmers and and shining beams of light coming from that. And we can only speak in the terms that are given to us. Um, But what we're saying is not illogical. We're not saying that one does not equal one. And we're not saying that one equals three. That's not what we're saying. Um, yet although, because even though it is not a mystery, it doesn't mean we can't say anything about it. What we're saying is that God is one, but He's revealed Himself as consisting and eternally as three persons. So His nature, God is nature and is, is one, but in His persons, are, they are three. So it's not saying one equals three. Does that make sense? We're, not, we're, we're saying that what is one is God's nature and who He is, but He has revealed Himself as three eternal persons. Um, so God existed from all eternity in this way, where three distinct persons, but all sharing in the divine nature. And... This is how we understand that God, in many ways, how the Bible talks about God being love. Um, These three persons have existed together in perfect harmony, in perfect love for each other, in this kind of dance where their existence has needed nothing else outside of that. Where they have perfectly been in this harmonious relationship. How we think of like a, a household. Um, God created families and created marriage and all these different things as, as small, finite pictures of what is going on for eternity. Um, they are existing in this perfect harmony of relationships where there's difference, and yet they, that difference brings something greater than had they been by themselves. Um, each person is essential to who God is, and yet they also have personal properties that are distinct to them. The Father is always calling forth and sending forth His Son, and the Son is always delighting in what His Father has and what the Father has given to Him. And together they are wrapped up in this fellowship by the Holy Spirit. And each person sees themselves through the other. Um, As parents, you often find your identity. You find who you are in relationship maybe to your spouse and in relationship to your kids. That that expands your understanding of who you are. And that's just like a, a poor analogy. But in many ways, 
the Father has always had His Son with Him, and now He's had the Spirit always relating in that perfect harmony and love that each of them knows themselves through each other. And they have nothing that they lack. They have nothing that they are in need of. But it was out of that overflowing love, that just pure delight that they had, that they wanted to share it with us. Um, God was like, I, I know I don't need anything else. I don't, I'm not creating the world because I'm lonely. But I, this delight and this beauty that I'm having from eternity is so amazing. I want someone to share in this. And so that's why God can create the world out of that pure delight without needing us and yet wanting us to be a part of what He's had from eternity. Um, so God is that love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the origin and cause of love. And all of God's activity, we're saying, is loving all of who He is, there's nothing that He does that's outside of that. Full of that love and delight which is the basis for our love and our life. Um, And His love is the love that loves to create something out of nothing. He loves and delights in doing that out of the joy. Uh, Because His love, because He doesn't need anything outside of that, He can provide what is lacking in us. He can have this dogged determination that is unconditional because He he says, I am Yahweh. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. There's nothing in this world, not even your own sin, that is ever going to stop this love this dogged determination to pursue us. Like the farmer, you know, he actually bets everything. He leaves everything on the table to pursue that lost child who spurned him and wished that he were dead. Um, God, God's love even gives that son who he's had from all eternity in his side, at his bosom, and he gives his son who was with him forever just so that we could have and share in that love and that delight. Um, that His love is so great that He said, I have promised to not be God without you. Like That's how determined His love is. He's promised to attach Himself to us for eternity. Since God's love has no need, it therefore can give whatever is lacking in us. Um, so this is the significance of, of what it means that God is, God is love. That His love is so determinative of who He is that we can say, we can trust, we can trust in who He is because we know that His nature and His character is unchanging. And that's how He's been for eternity. And we can really say that I believe in this God and not others. Um, that we can say that at the end of the day, this infinite God can give us Himself. Um, and I think that that was what the early church really struggled to try to like 
confess, how can anything other than God give us Himself? I know that's really boiling it down, but if we want to think of it in that way, how can someone who's not God give God to us? And, and the answer is, He can't. You can't. Um, if Jesus is not the eternal Son of God, equal in dignity and power, He could not satisfy God's eternal demands for us. If the Holy Spirit is not equally God, He could not bring us to God and unite us to His Son. He could not bring and give God to us. Does that make sense? So, so that the early church was like struggling with how to confess this, struggling with like, we see God as three persons, and yet there's only one God. And, but at the end of the day, we have to leave that at mystery. But we have to say, each of them is eternally God because our salvation depends on it. Our salvation utterly depends on that. That each person must be God for God to give us Himself. And so this was the heartbeat of very much the ancient church's struggle and even our struggle today as we try to learn to confess these things. Um, that we can ceaselessly approach God even though we can have doubt in the secular age like we talked about. Even though we're constantly having those pressures on our, our minds to trust in that God, the Christian God who's did, revealed Himself to us we can ceaselessly approach Him without despair uh, because we know that we'll find a God whose love, whose unconditional love uh, pursues us and seeks us out when we're constantly mixed in doubt, when we're constantly struggling uh, to know what to believe in this world that surrounds us, in what to actually say and where to throw all the chips in the pile. Um, but because of who God is, we can really say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Maker of the heaven and earth, because we know His name is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, I think that's all the time that we have today, but I don't want to get started to the next section. Um, but... Yeah, so in, in conclusion, like this is, there is no redemption, there is no work of God for us by the Jesus or the Holy Spirit if this is not the case. If this God, if Yahweh is not three persons, uh, but because He's revealed Himself in this way in Jesus, we, can, we, we have these, these, these facts that we can know that not only to others, but to me also, belongs this great salvation. Um, any that was probably the probably the dizzy factor for the this this series. It's a lot to, to kind of digest and I promise the future ones won't be as intense. Um, but any questions or thoughts or anything that struck you um, as we were going through this section? Norm? Yeah.
Yeah. Um, so the Apostles' Creed, probably parts of it were floating around in terms of like the second, third century. Uh, but yeah, we, we would say that the Apostles themselves did not necessarily write this creed, but the content of it is very faithful to what the early church has confessed um, from the beginning. So most people say that it was formulated as we have it now in the 7th century and pretty much became the standard for the whole church east and west at that time. And there are other creeds like the Nicene Creed and the the Chalcedon, um, the definition that was brought to bear there but those things, in many ways, are much more difficult for people to memorize and de- difficult for people to actually have a part of their daily lives and practice, which is why I think the Apostles' Creed became such a staple for the, for the church, because it's just much more trimmed down and, and simplified for a lot of ways, even though there's, the Nicene Creed is beautiful and... Um, but yeah, so it and, it, and it and it's structured in such a way that, as we'll see, it follows God the Father and goes into the Son and then the Holy Spirit. So they wanted to make it a very Trinitarian formula in terms of like how people are thinking about God's work in the world, that God is creating, redeeming, and bringing us to glory. I don't know if that helps. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so it, it, it means to like, it's from katecheo, which is Greek, to recite or like announce back and forth. And it, it was, it's kind of like a parrot kind of formula where people would um, before they were baptized in the early church, they had to, they would be called catechumens. And they would be going through this rigorous process of instruction um, in the creed, in the essentials of the faith, in order to make sure they had left idolatry and paganism, in order to make sure. And so they would go through that period of time before they could be baptized, and they would be catechized so they had to parrot back and forth when people said what do you believe about this they had to be able to say this is what they believe um so it's a different term than creed um but it's very much related good question yeah yeah yeah, um, that, that's a great question. I would, are you asking, how is it different than brainwashing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I would say that the, the huge difference is the fact that we're not saying the authority resides in us. The authority doesn't reside in what I'm saying. The authority doesn't reside in even the creed that we're saying inherently. What we're saying is like, no, there were things that happened in history 
objective things that everyone can, at the time of the apostles, could inspect. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is saying, here's the list of people you can go check this with. Don't, don't take my word for this. Um, he said, yeah, I'm an apostle, but you can also check all the, all the sources. Jesus could not have had this mass hallucination experiment where everyone experienced like the same hallucination over several days in several different places. No, they, I mean, like, so he's saying, like, the Jews could never present a body. The Jews could never, and the Romans could never um, take into account all these things that were happening. So go and find out why we believe these things. So brainwashing is saying, no, take it on my word, take it on my authority, and you can't question it. There's no room for doubt. There's no room for really let's, let us reason together and come to the best solution. And so um, we raise kids up in the faith, showing them these things and hoping that they'll take it on as their own confession, that their own heartfelt thing that they're saying, this trust, but it has to be for them. We can't believe for them. We can't trust for them. It has to be their utter allegiance to Jesus because they're convinced that these things are true for them. And so, and I, and I think that a lot of Christians are afraid of that. A lot of, like we said before, like living in secularism, we just feel embattled. We just feel entrenched in the warfare. And so churches respond by the heavy hammer and say, you can't ask questions. If you have any doubt, you're not a Christian. And that's just like the total wrong-headed response because none of us are the Holy Spirit. None of us can actually convince anyone of anything. And the truth is, God is saying, you need to trust because of who I am. Um, I am who I am. And trust in that. Not in the church. Not in these people who are saying these things. Yeah, they're going to help you into the truth and that they're essential in God's mission. But at the end of the day, we put our chips on the table because of all that Jesus did. And if he wasn't resurrected, then I'm leaving. Like if, I mean, I'm gone. And, yeah. So, I mean, anecdotally, like if a, a college professor said, is there any reason that you would not be a Christian? Like, oh, yes, yes. If you produce the body of Jesus, I would walk away tomorrow. I mean, yeah, I would research things and make sure everything is... But that we don't just, we're not just believing in this like a UFO, like we said before when you walked in. <laughs> this is not just a UFO. Um, but I'm just going to believe it even if somebody says, finds that there's no possibility for aliens. It's like, no, that's not. Paul says, of all people, we're to be pitied if Jesus was not raised. We're wasting our time. Um, but, but if we're not, then it's life everlasting. Yeah, yep. Yeah, knowledge, I mean, we, no, one is, no one can look at things purely objectively, but everyone is going through experiences and going through all kinds of things that condition how they interpret facts. And... Um, oh, yeah. So, I mean, so they, they were not only revealed this and saw those things, but the Holy Spirit was given to them and they were able to testify to those things. 
and they had that heartfelt trust which they're conveying to us um, as eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Good questions. Those are great. Any other thoughts or... So next week, we'll hopefully we'll get into how God is our Father and what it means for Him to be Almighty and Creator. And let's uh, close with a word of prayer then. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word that You've given to us and revealing Your name to us that You are who You are and You will be who You will be. That You're the first and the last and there's no other beside You. Um, we thank you that you have shown that you are steadfast and compassionate and loving to thousands of generations. And because of that, we can really trust in you and pledge our allegiance to, to you. And so we ask, Lord, that um, we would, as the church, be this space that allows people to have questions and doubts, but that we can also point people to what you've done in history and, and what your word says and how it leads us into this new life of love that you've had from all eternity. And it's in your son's name we ask. Amen.